you know, with few exceptions, each extremist, terrorist, uh, violent gang organization is, is, is really an outgrowth of a bounded cultural community that is itself in a deep, you know, psychosocial crisis. and welcome to the 1CA podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. We're joined today by Dr. Kwajo Owusu-Sarfo. He's a cultural conflict sociologist and holds a doctorate from Nova Southeastern University Department of Conflict Studies. He was originally a refugee from West Africa's Akan Twi peoples and is now a U.S. permanent resident. He spent significant amounts of time researching the psychological, soci- sociological, and cultural foundations of communities in violent conflict in West Africa, the Horn of Africa, and the Caribbean. He speaks English, French, and Akantui, and specializes in the interface between human psychosocial culture and its categorization within ArcGIS. You are the lead researcher for the Valkamir conflict video case study on the Kanuri people and their involvement with Boko Haram movement. Thank you very much for being on the Wednesday podcast. Yes, thank you very much for having me. Uh, thank you very much for your time. I, you know, you were born to the Akan Twi peoples, and I know that Akan Twi are in the tend to be in the south central region of of Ghana in West Africa. And my understanding yep. of doing some background was that Twi is a dialect of the Akan language. So, could you talk to everyone about who are the Akan Twi, and what do most people from that group do? Thank you very much for having me. And um, yes, I am a member of the um, Akan people of Ghana. Of Ghana. Um, yeah, and I speak Tree, which is spelled T-W-I. Um, so Tree happens to be one of the major um, dialects of the Akan language. Now, the Akan people generally reside, as you stated, in in um, central and, and southern Ghana. But interestingly, there's also, you can find Akan people in, in La Côte d'Ivoire, which is to the west, um, which shares um, a border with Ghana on the west, western side. And um, there's actually Akan people that can also be found uh, in some parts of Togo. So um, the Akan happen to be um, the most predominant ethnic group in in Ghana, and uh, most likely in Ivory Coast too. Um, uh, approximately 40% of um, the population of uh, La Côte d'Ivoire uh, is Akan, Akan speaking, and roughly 80% of the Ghanaian population is um, Akan speaking. So yeah, um, the Akan have a very rich um, history. Um, historically, uh, they're, they're believed to have um, migrated to their modern-day Ghana from the Sahel regions of Africa. And the, the Akan historically were grew to be a powerful nation, a powerful group, because, uh, because of the acquisition, because they had gold. Okay. They occupied areas in Ghana where 
gold was a very, very important part of the Ghanaian uh, the economy. You know, this trade in gold attracted British colonialists and different, uh, different, you know, different um, groups to want to do trade with the Akan. So the Akans were, um, gold was a very, very important part of Akan history. Um, primarily, I, my family is um, Ashanti. So the Ashanti are one of the major group, groups belonging to the Akan people. And so the, Akan, the Ashanti specifically were, you know, known as the gold traders. And, um, and so, so that's, mass- that's a very short history of the Akan. <laughs> yeah, it's a very long history. And so you yeah. said uh, the vast majority of people living in Ghana today are Akan people. And so that makes sense that they're throughout the society. Do people who are Akan in Ghana tend to be uh, considered the ruling class? Or are there people in other tribes that are um, less populous throughout business leaders or political leaders, for example? Great question. Uh, yes, the Akan happen to be the ruling class because they uh, form the majority of, of the Ghanaian population. For example, the president of Ghana right now, um, Nana Akufuado, he's, he's from the Akan um, ethnic group. But I will say that um, you know, due to uh, modernization uh, and just overall improvement and development and education, um, other other ethnic groups have risen through the ranks. And um, even though the the Akans still represent, still wield a lot of power and still represent um, um, the majority of the ruling class. There are other ethnicities, uh, people from other ethnicities have um, risen through the ranks and hold on, also have some, you know, some amount of power too. Okay. So um, there's one connection I wanted to drill on with America and I think specifically with African-American fraternities, I believe, and maybe sororities as well in colleges in the U.S. with the kente cloth, very common yes. for men and women who graduate from uh, maybe historically black colleges and universities to wear a stripe of kente cloth around their neck at graduation. And when I was in Accra, I was there um, twice actually, and, and uh, came over briefly from Cote d'Ivoire and then went back for a different uh, water project and right. was able to pick up some kente cloth when I was there. Could you talk about the sign or the symbolism of kente cloth a sign, uh, you know, being aligned with different tribes? And what that means translating to U.S. Okay, great question. So uh, the kente cloth is actually um, it's a very very symbolic in Akan culture, um, specifically uh, in the Ashanti or Equapim or Fanti. These are these different subgroups are you know some of the major. They embody some of the uh, major, uh, you know, different groups in the um, Akan um, ethnic group, and in each of them, the kente cloth is special. Um, how special is the kente cloth? Well, the chiefs, the the chiefs that preside over municipalities of different um, areas uh, within the Akan culture, they. You know, they wear uh, the kente cloth. The kente cloth is supposed to 
um, it's, it's worn as a it's a sign of prestige it's a sign of royalty and over time it's symbolic its symbolism has only transcended royalty it's something that's it's worn on special occasions during during um, wedding ceremonies during you know the naming ceremony of a child or even during graduations in Ghana and over time with the you know the historical historical relevance of the slave trade as some of the Akan people came over to the new world by way of slavery some of the customs and some of the treasure symbols in Akan culture uh, you know were they brought that along with them and uh, as you've rightly stated um, during special ceremonies in African-American cultures such as Kwanzaa or even during graduations they you can see people wearing the kente um, kente designs and the kente cloth and it's it's just another sign of how um, you know the connection even though there's uh, people were separated by miles, you know, because of the slave trade. Um, there's still connections between uh, the descendants of black slaves in America and, um, you know, the Akan people in, in Ghana. So the Kente cloth is just an, an example of the connection between, you know, some of the, some of the cultural uh, symbolism that was brought over from Africa to the New World during okay. the uh, transatlantic slave trade. Yeah, it's it's quite a powerful symbol as well, and because the colors are so rich, it really stands out when people walk uh -huh. across the stage or wear it in public. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, right. The food I thought was amazing, by the way. So if there's anyone listening to this <laughs> who has not been to Ghana or has not been to a Ghanaian restaurant in the United States, um, you should definitely go. If there's a Black Stars game on television, go then, because the crowd will be rowdy and lively. Uh, yeah, a lot of um, amazing mixes of groundnut soup, soup, uh, stew, sauces. Uh, you know, the, the mix of rice and vegetables and chicken and yep. meat, so good. Yep. If you don't mind me asking, what was your what 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 what's your pick? What was your favorite? I like the groundnut. I, I really, I, I got a bunch of that in uh, Cote d'Ivoire, and uh -huh. I think groundnut with some chicken was so nice. Or um, oh. or a grilled fish. It's so uh -huh, common okay. to get a grilled fish, and you get the whole fish, right? In the U.S., we tend right, to right. take off the tail and the head and everything else, but you get the whole fish, which is nice. Right. And what, what did you eat the soup with? Uh, typically rice. With rice. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was okay. using hands at first, and then that got really, really hot, and so I started using the spoons. And uh, right, you know, locals made fun of me at first, but I didn't care. It hurt. <laughs> well, yeah. So food, um, food is food is one is very, very um, one of the ways that um, uh, you know we uh, the Akan culture. You know, some people studying the Akan culture can see the variety and the richness of Akan culture because there's so many different kinds of foods. You know, like you've, you've just talked about the different soups. You know, there's groundnut soup, or which in America we would call peanut soup. Um, and there's light soup, which is made, which is with, you know, goat meat. And then there's um, palm nut soup. Uh, 
so all the soups, you know, can, you can eat with rice or you can eat it with fufu. I don't know if you tried fufu. Oh, yeah, fufu um, or uh, yes. fufu banan? Yes, yeah, yeah, fufu. Um, but, you know, there's fufu that's made with banana, but there's also fufu that's made with um, cassava. Right. So, yeah, cassava, which um, other, it's known as um, manioc in um, other places. Right. Uh, so, yeah, and then there's uh, jollof rice, which I hope you have the opportunity to oh, taste. Oh, yes. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I ever had the the wrist strength or the arm, forearm strength to make in the mortar and pestle to make uh, fufu. fufu as well as the women who would do that every day. Yes, yes, fufu. Uh, it's <laughs> fufu takes a lot of work, but uh, you know you have to you know first prefer the cassava and then you know get the mortar and pestle and you know the young men usually are the ones that. Um, Grab the, the the pistol and uh, pound the fufu. While usually uh, the women are the ones that ha um, you know, while it's being pounded, you you have to gather the pounded cassava together into a you know a starchy uh, you know paste to make the fufu. So it's <laughs> it's quite um it's yeah it's a lot of work, but definitely worth I mean, it. Yeah, it's worth it when you eat it because it's one of um it's one of the major delicacies in Ghana. So I wanted to get into uh, after one more of the question, get into your evolution of coming from Ghana, coming to the United States, and what had happened. But first, okay. um, talk about your first name, and this may be helpful for others listening, uh, traveling to the region, who see repeatedly a lot of quojos, a lot of copies. Yes. A lot of people with similar first names. And so your name indicates that you were born on a Monday. So yes. could you talk about that naming system for boys and girls? Right. So it's not necessarily unique in Akan culture. Um, there's definitely other ethnic groups in uh, West Africa that follow a naming system or pattern which corresponds to the day of the week on which um, a child was born. So um, I was born on Monday, and so my first name is Kujo, uh, and with the Ghanaian accent, it's Kujo. <laughs> but uh, yes, um, if if you were born on a Tuesday, you would be Kwabena. If you were born uh, Wednesday, it's Kweku. Uh, Thursday is Yao. Friday is Kofi, as in Kofi Annan. Saturday would be Kwame, and Sunday would be Kwesi. Now, the names that I've given you, though, are those are the male. Those are the names of uh, males. Uh, so the female version of somebody of um, a female a female child born in the Akan culture on on a Monday would be Ajwa, which is the female version of Kojo. And then um, for Tuesday would be Abena, which is the male version, the female version of Kwabena. And then for Wednesday it would be. It would be Aku, which is the female, which is a female version of Kweku, you know. And then for Thursday, it would be Ya, which is the female version of Yao. Okay. So, um, you know, what's what's interesting about the na most of the names is they have a uh, a Kwa prefix K W A, except for Thursday, which is which begins with a. Y A, which is Yao. Yeah. But all all the other um, 
names have a qua prefix. So um, yeah, that's so that's one way to um, distinguish uh, somebody born on a Thursday from the other days of the week. That's so yeah. I hope that uh, that helps and you um, understand the um, naming system. It is helpful. Really Thank you. And the pronunciation. Yeah. Say that again. And the pronunciation. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, it's the, the interesting, uh, interesting thing about the pronunciation is uh, it's always hard to let somebody else to, you know, someone who's not from Ghana or who's not from the Akan culture, you know, to really help them with the, the intonation and the uh, articulation. It's different, you know, because when I tell people that my name is Kwajo, it's different from how you would say it in Ghana. It's right. Kwajo. You know, when I say Kwabna, it's actually Kwabna. <laughs> you know? Right. So it's, I've just come to accept that it's it's very hard to, you know, for people to really know how to say it right. Just like it will be hard for me to get the articulation and intonation of some other cultures' um, names correctly. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's good to so, hear yeah, from yeah. someone firsthand to mm-hmm. say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, the pronunciation is this way. So that, especially for people listening to this, if they're going to go to West Africa, they need to take the time to sit down with someone and get to know them and really have an interest in speaking the language more accurately and pronouncing names correctly. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, so and I wanted you, to... You know, you've touched... Uh, yeah, go ahead. I just I was just going to say that you've touched on an important point which um we usually try to stress um at Bakamir is that um when soldiers are deployed to you know various places that are involved in conflict you know of talking to people and trying to you know for example trying to understand how the name is pronounced like these are all important ways of engaging people and uh building that you know rapport um which is important if you if you're going to be able to successfully successfully work with these communities and uh you know um encounter terrorism operations yeah yep. you need to have an interest and a value in the people yes yes yeah exactly stick around for the rest of my conversation with Kwajo Wusu Sarfo we're going to talk about the Dagwon conflict his research related to Boko Haram and how civil affairs forces could better integrate with host communities. Mark your calendars for the 2019 Civil Affairs Roundtable to be held on Tuesday, 2 April at the National Guard Armory Conference in Washington, D.C. This year's roundtable will conclude the seminal discussion of optimizing civil affairs started at last fall's symposium at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and in the 2018-19 Civil Affairs Issue Papers to be published before the roundtable. At the roundtable, the discussion shifts to a more granular identification of .mil PFP pathways to guide CA modernization and continuous investment in an innovative and adaptive force that is well-networked in planning and operational relationships and persistently engaged and aligned regionally to facilitate political military goals and objectives. In addition to the speakers and panel discussions, attending members and friends of the regiment will conclude by looking at how to advance civil affairs at a more ambitious multilateral scale over the next year's cycle. In order to maximize official travel for uniformed members of the regiment, 
The roundtable immediately precedes the PKSOI Training and Education Workshop, which will be held on 3 to 5 April at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania. For more information, including the agenda and registration, go to the Civil Affairs Association website, which is at civilaffairsassoc.org. Welcome back to the 1CA podcast and our interview with Dr. Kwadru Uwusu-Sarfo. Dr. Uwusu-Sarfo, I always thought that Ghana had been a very safe place, especially in West Africa. There had been some turmoil. But there was part of, uh, I guess, the Ghanaian history where uh, you had an interest in leaving, right? So can you tell people, was that Ghana, what, what had happened in that situation? You know, why did you feel like you needed to leave and become a refugee? Well, uh, like you said, um, Ghanaians actually take a lot of pride in, and you know, enjoying sustained periods of peace, and uh, you know, being one of the more notable democratic countries in West Africa. Um, but there, in the north of Ghana, there have been, you know, instances of instability and um, uh, you know, protracted ethnic uh, conflict. Uh, the only difference between you know that type of conflict and other places is that uh, you know it's been lo- largely localized in the north and it hasn't really been allowed to uh, uh, you know spread to other parts of the country. So, okay. but yeah, um, you're talking the about northern... the part of the north closer to Burkina, like north of Tamale, Wa, that far north. Well, yeah. My, my, it's yeah, the northern part of Ghana. Yes, exactly. Uh, so in the northern part of Ghana, um, there had been you know quite a protracted conflict, uh, which is called the um, uh, it's called the, the Dagbon conflict. Dagbon as in D A G B O N. It was a conflict that's the the main people involved in that conflict were uh, people that belonged to the Dagomba Dagomba ethnic group. Um, unsafe um, conditions. 
And so at the time, you know, we were living in the north. My family and I were we were living in the north, and um, those unsafe conditions, uh, you know, caused us to, um, you know, seek a refuge elsewhere. So okay. that's that's really the background of uh, um, the what happened, the, the conflict, and how it impacted my family and um, us having to leave. Okay. Um, just a quick update on that is um, just recently, last week, uh, the president of Ghana, and um, in addition to chiefs from other, other ethnic groups, were able to, you know, uh, work with um, representatives from the Dagon ethnic um, uh, group to um, find some kind of a resolution to that conflict. So wow. that conflict had been going on for about uh, to over, the, you know, about about 20 years. So wow. it's, uh, so 600 yeah, years right. of sustained peace and understanding, and, yep. 20 years of violence, and now yep. we're back to a spot where do you, right. you feel like this is back to what they had before, or they trade off one to the next? Um, I think what has, what has happened right now is that um, there's a, a tentative um, roadmap, oh, which, you know, which if both sides follow it in good faith, could actually lead to you know sustained peace and right now everything is fragile and everybody's you know trying to each uh stakeholders trying very hard to respect the terms of this temporary um i mean this um you know uh roadmap so i you know early indications are that um you know the signs look promising okay and um i i'm confident that you know, this is going to start another era of peace. Um, but it's also important that the government of Ghana um, continue to play an important role in mediating the conflict. Because, yes, on the um, there it's it's important for a lot of the a lot of a lot of the conflict is based on cultural aspects, which the government of Ghana may not have any power or role in. But there's, it's also important to, you know, um, pay attention to development in those places um, in, in the north because um, the northern parts of Ghana have historically had uh, grievances of, you know, being left behind and, and thinking that the southern parts, the south and central parts of the country get a lot more of the funding for development and education and, you know, infrastructure. So uh, the government getting involved in the peace process and making sure that you know the north catches up in terms of development and you know infrastructure development if the north catches up with the south i think will also help and go a long way towards um you know sustaining peace that's really good to hear do you feel like it at some point the north would stabilize enough so that you would go back and see friends and family yeah i i um i certainly hope so and i i um like i said the early indications show that um both sides are interested in showing a good faith commitment to, um, you know, keep it, keeping and sustaining peace. So um, I, from what I've seen, I think there's a very good chance that I can go back and, uh, you know, see uh, old, old faces. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, yes. That'd be great. Well, yeah. sir, I wanted to focus just a couple of questions here on your current research and what you're doing for Valkyrie, right. what you're doing on the side. And your research right. focused on the psychological, sociological, cultural foundations of violent conflict, 
And the regions you've been focusing on in the past have been uh, West Africa, Horn of Africa, and the Caribbean. So yes. what are you studying currently? Which, which groups are you studying and, and what have you found? Are there common themes, for example, across you know, looking at psychological, sociocultural factors in all these regions, West Africa, Horn of Africa, and the Caribbean? Thank you for that question. Um, so I've been, I, I've been studying the conflict in the um, Kanuri community of West Africa. And uh, what I've been studying specifically is the cultural origin, uh, the sustainment, and um, epidemiology of Boko Haram, which I'm sure you've heard about. Right. <laughs> you, you know a lot about. Um, so concerning that, you know, the U.S. Army Special Operations Forces mission in this conflict is really to support its eventual resolution and uh, prevent the conflict spread beyond its current areas of occurrence. Um, now, some background on the Kanuri. The, the Kanuri are, you know, there are people who are the most closely involved in the violent extremist organization that calls itself the people of the Sunnah for preaching and jihad. Uh, Sunnah, if you're wondering what it means, uh, it refers to the practice and personal examples of the Prophet Muhammad's life. Okay. So, uh, this extremist organization, it, you know, it began as a religious movement that was led by the Kanuri scholar named Mohammed Yusuf, who had just returned from his religious studies in Saudi Arabia. Um, now, the ethnic neighbors of the Kanuri people are the Hausa people. So Hausa just Hausa happens to be the most widely spoken language in West Africa, by the way. So when the Hausa elders heard the ideas of uh, Yusuf's new political religious thinking explained to them, that's when they began calling the collection of him and his followers Boko Haram. Okay. So my studies have um, focused on the cultural origins of Boko Haram in order to understand how the now violent extremist group sustains itself, uh, you know, and then looking at the epidemiology of the spread of its ideology, um, and also how it manages to recruit young people to join their, to join its fighter ranks. Uh, how it manages to sustain itself despite fierce opposition from the, um, you know, from the combined governments of Nigeria, Niger, Cameroon, and Chad. And uh, one of the more fascinating things that I found, uh, well, my team and I have also discovered this, is that, um, you know, with few exceptions, each extremist, terrorist, uh, violent gang organization is, is, is really an outgrowth of a bounded cultural community. That is itself in a deep, you know, psychosocial crisis. Now, this psychosocial crisis could be, you know, uh, you know, inhabitants feeling some kind of uh, trauma from, you know, globalization, or if, if there's, um, there's been some kind of, um, you know, conflict that has wiped out, wiped out their communities, you know, killed off important members in their, in their, in their group, and you know, wiped away their history their schools and, you know, that type of stuff can really create um, psychosocial crisis. You know, that's, uh, you know, a quick background of, um, um, you know, what I've been studying. Okay. Uh, the Kanuri the communities are traditional leaders, which are, you know, the parents, grandparents, and different key influences. What's happening now is that they find themselves unable to stop the members of their community from sustaining, enabling, and spreading the violent extremist organization and its and, and their ideology. So, 
So do you think that the psychosocial traumas, though, these are it sounds like these are built up over years or possibly generations. And I right. wonder if maybe the older generation is actually opposed to it, or maybe they sort of they, they agree with the traumas that have been there. Maybe not the way of exercising or acting out with the terrorist organization, but can you talk about the the history of it? You know, th- these traumas could they happen within a short time frame, like five years, or do they normally go over 10, 20, 30, 40 years? Well, I think it's, it's, these traumas are usually from circumstances or from events that have, you know, built up over time. And not only have they been, you know, built up over time, but they're also passed down from generation to generation, you know? So... We have that in the United States. There were, I mean, it's been a long, long time and continued, I would say, suppression or oppression of uh, Native peoples in America. Right, right. Um, mass killing and, and movement, physical movement of people from Native lands to other locations. Right, right. So not only have they been, not only have they been inherited and also passed down through, you know, word of mouth, uh, in a lot of cases, for example, the living conditions have been, you know, exacerbated. You know, uh, they've gotten worse. And, um, you know, a lot of times it's, these are the, uh, how do I, these are the, maybe uh, for lack of a better word, you know, the type of, you know, the grievances that pe- these people have is really an opportunity for, you know, these violent extremist organizations to really um, step in and tap in into their grievance and, you know, for example, say, hey, you see what's happening? You know, you're not, the reason why this, the reason why you're behind or the reason why you're not uh, as wealthy or the reason why your, your, your youth are not, are dying off or, you know, it's because the government is doing this or this, there's this influence from the West that is causing all these bad things in your neighborhood or in your in your uh, community to happen so yeah. you know come join us and we will if you come join us we will you know d- we definitely have the you know the answer to your trauma or your suffering or your pain right does that make sense it does yeah if they have nowhere else to turn then that's the spot for them yep yep exactly so okay um, well i wanted to ask you uh, one final question here uh, okay. What suggestions would you have for civil affairs forces as they prepare to deploy to West Africa, the Horn of Africa? For example, you know, where should they turn to study foundations of violent conflict or to understand the culture before they head out the door? The one thing that I think I, I, I can definitely share, what, you know, the, a critical lesson that I have learned um, is that each violent extremist organization, you, you're definitely going to discover that. You know, there are one or more cultural identity groups that sustain and spread the violent organization, you know, either by serving as victims, victims or perpetrators or enablers. So these violent extremist groups, there's always a community, you know, that serves as a pipeline to recruit uh, perpetrators or, you know, these same communities are also the, the same communities that are, you know, terrorized and harassed, you know, so um, that's that's a very... That was uh, one of the major observations that um, I've realized. And um, the second critical lesson is that, you know, the application of violent force from government security systems, they 
you know, they tend to deepen the initial psychological crisis. So they make they make the conditions worse, and either they strengthen the violent ideology or spread the violent extremist organization further into the affected cultural identity group. So this is why it's really important that interventions from civil affairs forces, uh, you know, when they prepare for West Africa or even the Horn of Africa, you know, they, fo- they focus on soft power. Now, you know, what do I mean by soft power? Soft power involves, you know, stuff like information operations, tribal engagement, village stability operations. You know, these soft power elements are, you know, contingent on civil affairs, affairs personal capacity to break down, deconstruct, and analyze the cultural human domain of the assigned area of operation. You know, right. so, um, and, you know, when you, when you successfully implement, you know, the soft, the soft power skills, you know, you definitely advantage to this is you learn how to engage with the, with these community, the conflict communities, and then you also learn to understand their, you know, their, their historical narratives and effects of, let's say, intrusive globalization. And then you're also able to demonstrate an understanding of how powerful powerful emotions drive violence or, you know, inhibit successful resolution of conflict. Right. And I think this is, this is probably one of the most important uh, things that uh, self-power enables is that it enables you to understand, understand and acquire skills that, you know, to effectively engage in psychological messaging and emotional you know, elicitation in culture and cultures that are different from your own, you know, comes back to what we're talking about early on about, you know, <laughs> talking to people about, oh, so your name, where does your name come from? You know, you're really trying to understand not just them, but their, you know, their cultural and historical narratives. These are all important in, um, you know, in the oper- operations over there in those, in these regions. Exactly. And it's a culture, I think, that I found in West Africa, in many nations, uh, very rich in storytelling, which is yep, fantastic yep. for civil affairs to sit down and have some coffee or have some tea or have a drink with somebody and have a you know share a meal and just tell stories, get to know someone definitely. on a personal level, and that will translate into the broader sense of the community as well. Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, I mean, I can tell you from my kind of culture that storytelling is it's a very, very big part of, you know, how we learn about our history. I mean, you know, a lot of uh, people in America may be able to learn more about their family history from, let's say, I don't know, from uh, a genealogical tree. You know, all I know about my family is really, well, I don't want to say all, but most of what I know about my family is just really through stories that my my father, my father has told me, or my grandfather, my grandfather or grandmother. So, um, storytelling is, and in a lot of cases, you know, especially with, for example, Ashanti, uh, Ashanti history about the wars and, you know, what, uh, slave trade, like, in a lot of ways, there may not actually be stuff written, you know, written stuff. So, you're most likely going to learn about, you know, and get a lot of vivid information from you know, storytellers. So storytellers are play a very, very important role in um in Akan culture and you know other in different not just Akan culture, but I would say different African cultures too. Yeah. Well, Doctor Owusu Sarko, I would imagine that you're also a very good storyteller. Uh, what you shared today, <laughs> I tried. <laughs> what you shared today with us has been uh, amazing. Very, very helpful. When we, uh, I'll share information with the listening audience in the notes for this show so they can contact you through Valcomir. 
But uh, Dr. Wusu Sokro, I really want to thank you for being on the 1CA podcast. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. And, uh, I really enjoyed this. And uh, I hope we can do this again. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.